You speak about equality, but do you really mean it? Are you marching for freedom or when it's convenient? Want people to like you, want to be accepted. That's probably why you are out here protesting. No pay for a second. You don't have incentive. Is this about you? Well, then what's your intention? What's the intention? What's the intention? Hey, everyone, welcome back to this week's episode of Staying with the Trouble. We're super excited to be back here for another week on our podcast, and I can't wait to engage in another great chat with my colleagues today. My name is Grace, and I'm coming to you from North Vancouver. I was born and raised here, so that is the lens that I will be looking at this discussion from. I'm also a fifth-generation Canadian. Thanks so much, Grace. I'm so excited to be here as well. Uh, my name is Julia, and I am second-generation Canadian, born and raised in South Surrey, British Columbia. And I'm so excited um, to share the podcast today of Staying with the Trouble with you all. Thank you. My name is Pippa. I would just like to take this time to acknowledge that we live and study on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam peoples, Tsleil-Waututh peoples, and Squamish peoples. I would like to acknowledge the 94 calls to action and our commitment towards enacting them. For me, as a recent permanent resident of Canada, I feel a responsibility to help work towards the 93rd and 94th calls to action, which call upon the government to educate newcomers like myself to Canada about the diverse history of Aboriginal peoples of Canada and to observe the treaties with Indigenous peoples. Thank you so much for sharing your personalized land acknowledgement with us today, Pippa. My name is Natasha, and I'm a second-generation mixed-race Canadian settler with immigrant parents from Nepal and Armenia. Today, we are diving into the topic of the happy affect in education. And this refers to the way that teachers prioritize the maintenance of a happy classroom environment. And as such fail to address systemic issues that persist in society. Maintaining this happy affect prevents teachers from staying with the troubles and causes them to turn a blind eye to suffering that might be happening right in front of them. Thanks for that introduction, Natasha. Um, so the articles that we um, are basing this podcast on, uh, the first article is Losing an Arm, Schooling as a Site of Black Suffering by Michael Dumas, goes through four examples of lived experiences during, during desegregation reform through the mandatory busing program in Seattle, Washington. The second article that we'll be referencing is How to Become Less Deadly, a Provocation to the Fields of Teacher Education and Educational Research by Acilia Franklin Phipps and Courtney L. Rath, which talks about the idea of measurable progress in Western society and how making kin doesn't align with schools' individualistic prerogatives. One of the main themes that we tracked across these two articles that Julia just explained um, is the idea of racial melancholia. This refers to the ongoing mourning that racialized people feel without an end in sight for discrimination, as well as that heavy, deeply felt awareness of the history and persistence of anti-Black disregard and subjugation. This is discussed throughout the articles in terms of the discomfort and weakness that this transcribes to within the school setting. 
Awesome. So now we're just going to break some of these ideas down a bit further and provide a little bit of our own experience to go on with it. So in the first article, there's a focus on how schools were not only places were not places of comfort for black students. Although the students were physically present in the classroom, they were not welcomed by their peers and they were not given a voice by their teachers. One of the quotes that really stood out to me was when the author was describing the concept of la petite misery. And the quote reads, we deny the meaningfulness of everyday suffering by always contrasting it with what are admittedly the most tragic and materially evident forms of social trauma. I really related to this idea of suffering being commonly overlooked. In my experience in schools growing up, constant microaggressions were commonly dismissed on the basis that maybe I could be worse off or I didn't have it as bad as other people or that the opportunities I was afforded should somehow make up for it. But this concept of constantly comparing trauma just perpetuates the harm. Um, yeah, maybe I'd like to hear some more of everyone's thoughts on how trauma is still felt throughout the classrooms now. I'd love to touch on that, Natasha. Thanks so much for sharing your personal um, experience. Um, you know, one of the articles expressed that Black educators, children, and families are never quite sure when they'll be taken back to this place of trauma, nor can they fully determine when or if the pain will end. So every time racialized students experience racism, the weight of their generational trauma is brought up. This reoccurring trauma and combined fear, I feel like can be paralleled to post-traumatic um, stress disorder. Um, it definitely feels those feelings of uncertainty, fearful, and constantly in a fight or flight mode at all times. So through this lens, I feel like it's totally understandable that the students of color live in constant suffering. That's such a great point, Julia, and I think it leads into what I saw in this article as well. One of the things that I loved about the first article by Dumas is that he framed it with the book Kindred by Octavia Butler. And I thought Kindred is such an interesting lens to read this paper in because I loved this book when I first read it. And this particular quote, Butler responded, there is no way we could have survived slavery, she offered, and not have lost something, um, which was referenced from an interview that she had done back in 1998. was super captivating since I hadn't necessarily thought about that. Um, when I was first reading the book last year, because I was initially drawn into the story of a modern day woman of color being transported back into a slave colony in the antebellum South. It, it struck me as a really unique way to speak about the effects that our past still has on our present day. But then this article by Dumas highlighted this novel in a new way for me. The idea of the main character not being able to choose when she gets to go back and forth between modern day safety and the horrors of the antebellum self speak volumes about how marginalized students never quite know when they will have to return to their site of trauma. And I found myself connecting it to this question of what are students having to sacrifice to gain something? Marginalized students cannot survive schooling without losing something or being inflicted with suffering. And to stay in the trouble means to consider that Suffering is ongoing. One cannot simply mourn and move on. Trauma and struggle is presented in the classroom as something of the past and something distanced from ourselves. Yet this, this fails to address suffering as an ongoing and extremely present issue within the school, which invalidates the pain that students in our classroom are feeling. 
Yeah, Grace, I like what you said about staying in the trouble. This involves accepting that suffering is happening in our classrooms and not, as Natasha said earlier, turning a blind eye to it. So the idea that teachers have this, they're trying to create a happy effect only helps this suffering persist. So what I mean by that is that teachers on our quest to create a happy and safe classroom environment, we often build this off as our we build this off of our own ideas and understanding of what is a safe environment or what is a safe classroom. And this doesn't always consider the suffering that students experience and their needs themselves. So I think one way that we often see this happy effect in the classroom is with this idea of treat others how you would like to be treated. But this doesn't address or acknowledge the suffering that students in our class might be feeling. So by saying this in itself, suffering is still happening in our classrooms. So how do we know that everybody wants to be treated the same? In order to address the suffering, we need to move away from treating others how we would like to be treated and treating others how they themselves would like to be treated. Thanks so much everyone for adding all of your points to that. Unpacking the suffering caused by the happy affect really, really leads us nicely into the pitfalls of performative progress. Yeah, I totally agree, Natasha. So. One of the biggest issues I feel like that we are enabling this segregation to still be present in our education system is the idea of performative progress. Today's education still has a structure for teaching in a very segregated individualistic way. Inclusion is simply performative and being used as a quick remedy, a band-aid if you will, to give the illusion of fixing the problem but not actually adding any measures. We're not addressing the policies and structures that are in place. One quote that really drives this home is progress is a hierarchizing worldview. The creation of a measure by which some portion of humanity must be found lacking. And simply by the nature of this quote, it sets a group of people below or lesser than others. So how do we push past this hierarchy and begin progress that isn't simply performative, but enacts real change? The, educa the education system is so focused on pumping out university-ready individuals that it, it's not really structured around the needs of creating individuals who have positive experiences, both emotionally, academically, and socially. So where was the disconnect in education that students being um, deemed unhappy was worth the A's that they were getting? And why do we have this notion that as long as the end product is good, that the suffering that our students are facing is not as important or as forgotten. Amazing questions, Grace. Um, you know, in the story of Elnora Hookfin, she says, we never really desegregated. We remain a sophisticated, segregated system. How do we do that? How did we do that? We came up with something called the honors program. So this is exactly what this exact situation we saw exemplified in the honors program in the Freedom Writers. They were full of white students with only one black student in the class. And at that, the principal was adamant that only some sort of mistake would have, would have allowed a black student to be admitted to this prestigious program. This shows how the progress of inclusion was simply performative. Yes, optically schools are multicultural, but on the inside, there's still racial segregation. It's just in more, in more of a subtle way now. And, and, so, and unfortunately, sadly to date, there's still barriers for colored students to enter honors or advanced programs. And when they are admitted, they're definitely still faced with the battle of feeling totally unwelcome. Yeah, you're totally right there, Julia. And I think that... Um, these policies are not just in places such as honors system programs. 
So inclusion is just as Grace said, performative, a quick remedy that doesn't actually address problems that students are facing. And we don't value kin or students themselves. Rather, these policies are structures that simply band-aid these problems. So we can see this everywhere. While I was on my practicum, I witnessed one of these progressive policies that wasn't really necessarily helping anyone. Um, so one of I was informed that one of my students um, was found selling drugs on campus and he'd already been suspended for it. So in order to prevent him from getting suspended again, the teachers just decided to turn a blind eye to the fact that he was still selling drugs under their no tolerance for drug policy. And on the surface, this looks great. It looks like, oh, we're a school, we say no to drugs. But is this actually helping the student? Because this policy is preventing the teachers from engaging in conversation or helping address the root problem of why is the student selling drugs? And it's preventing that relationship from forming. So this, this policy in itself is putting a band-aid on the problem, waiting for the student to finish his time in school and just get spat out at the other side of the system. So the way that these policies are made and who's implementing them says a lot about what the intended outcomes truly are. So when we look at the way inclusion schools were implemented, something that I asked myself was, why were these black students bused to white schools? Why didn't white students get bused to black schools instead? Yeah, thanks for sharing that story with us, Pippa. Another disconnect from performative progress is within our idea of what success really looks like. So we often read or hear stories about individual black students, maybe who graduate high school, go on to post-secondary education and land a job. We often interpret this as success, but is this success? Why do we simply have this notion that as long as the end product is beneficial, that all of the suffering that occurred before it was worth it? These same students, these success stories, they suffered greatly through their educational experience. And until we start addressing the suffering, the blatant racism, the everyday petite, le petite misery, we cannot call this a success. Yeah, these are amazing points that you've all brought up. I think if we all were to take a look at our practicums, we would be able to name a bunch of policies and programs that are still segregating these students. Um, even if I just think about my own experience, I'm in a school that is very academy heavy, but at what cost? Because academies cost a lot of money. So if a brilliant athlete doesn't have the financial means to join these teams and join these programs, then that is already a form of segregation because they, they can't perform in that way. So it's clear that the educational reform that occurred in the U.S. and Canada can be viewed as a white savior story, desegregating schools. Students were given this false promise that this was their ticket to success, but how is this product, uh, this progress, I mean, actually felt by students? That is a excellent question, Grace. How was this progress felt by students? So students, uh, racialized students were essentially pawns in this grand performative scheme of progress, but what students individually experienced and continue to experience is far from it. So in the article, Losing an Arm, we can see many examples of the loss that racialized students experience during this process of education re reform or so-called progress. Um, and the quote that I, I found to really exemplify this was that students suffer a kind of malice resulting from a growing consciousness that what they are promised is an educational opportunity is unlikely to lead to greater social or educational mobility. 
So like you were saying, the Performative White Savior Act of removing students from their black communities and placing them in inclusion schools is counteractive to making kin in the fact that it distances students from their communities and from their families and places them in an unfamiliar environment. So how is this acting in their favor? Many of these students commuted for two to four hours a day and that time that they could have spent with their friends, with their families was stolen from them. And in my research and how different aspects of your life affect your academic success, one of the biggest factors that determines your academic success is family engagement. It's right at the top of the list. And this has been widely studied. I looked at a study from Ohio State University in 2019, and it made it extremely clear how how vital this time with your family really is. And this is one of the things that was stolen from these students. So what other losses do racialized students suffer in these reforms and in the current education system? Yeah, there was another quote that comes to mind from the um, Dumas article that says, even on the days when we arrived on time, we were already late. That just exemplified that the students knew the system was working against them. They were spending time away from their families. They were suffering. And at that point, why did they even go to school? Oh, and another thing on this topic, while we're talking about policies working against the needs of the Black communities, I wanted to give a shout out to another podcast from the New York Times. They put out a great mini series that talks about desegregation in the New York School District. Um, it's called Nice White Parents, and I think it's a must listen for all future teachers like us. Ooh, thanks, Natasha. I'm writing down that title. I'm going to check that out after this. I think it's also important to note that the lack of real progress was not only felt by the students, but by teachers as well. And in, in the article, it says, we talk about closing the achievement gap, but we have to take a look at what we're doing to our kids. Teachers continue to disadvantage students by racially profiling them in the way that they're disciplined. I mean, we see this every day on the news and we hear about it in our school systems that black students are suspended more likely or that they're given harsher disciplines. And how are we supposed to reform that? when our everyday world is also reflecting that with our justice systems. So not only this, but as we mentioned before, students are still segregated, but this time it's within the school itself. So these honors classes, they segregate those who will succeed and then those who won't. But who decides who gets to be in these classes and at what cost? And then there's this wait list for honors classes that's full of black students even though there seems to be plenty of room in the classroom for more students. So I'd say that that's a big disconnect for me. Yeah, so true, Grace. Um, you know, this is also seen with teacher candidates, where the fear of doing or saying anything uh, wrong prevents them from starting a journey towards true inclusive pedagogy. And this fear can turn people away from the profession entirely. And what we really need is for teachers to come into the profession and address what's happening to make a real change. Yeah, these are all really great points. And I think you're right about teachers coming in to make a real change. But, but where do teachers start in the process of trying to stay with the troubles? Yeah, that's a great question to explore, Pippa. Um, you know, I wanted to reference um, one of the articles that we read that suggests um, staying in the trouble by making kin. 
you know, you can't get to true progress without making kin and recognizing the present struggles of the community. Making kin is what we need most to rebalance the very unequal patterns of suffering and well-being. It makes us accountable and also obligated to each other, very similar to how we would be with our immediate families or other groups which, of which we belong. And from this position, we become motivated to strive to understand that there was trouble. And we need to recognize the fact that the trauma is still very much a present issue. It's not starting over and begin again and beginning again like nothing has ever happened. But instead, it's about getting to a place where we no longer deny these horrors and we learn to, to repair what has been damaged. I really wanted to, to um, repeat this great quote that was in one of the articles um, that says, Making kin is at odds with two humanist, humanist myths on which the very notion of education is founded, which is individualism and progress. Competitive and zero-sum game schooling practices produce students and teachers as individualized humanist subjects who, in the construct of resource-scarce environment, cannot afford to collaborate. Making kin requires co-laboring. We require each other in unexpected collaborations and combinations in hot compost piles. We become with each other or not at all. Making kin is anti-hierarchy that resists the production of sameness as a version of equity. Yeah, wow. What, a, what an interesting idea to engage with, this idea of making kin. I think our educational practices can never truly be um, desegregated until we make these real tangible steps to connect and understand that we need to level the playing field for those who have been discriminated against for so long. It's not enough to continue with these band-aid fixes and the constant phrasing of I'm trying or I'm scared to do it because I don't know enough. We need to remove the notion that as long as the end product is good, then the means of getting students to this place doesn't matter, even if the trauma is inflicted. When the people who have benefited from colonialism stop looking at our changing world through rose-colored glasses and make the choice to make kin, then that is when we'll finally be in an education system that seeks to better our students rather than flippantly and unknowingly continues their suffering. As put by Franklin Phipps in Wrath, to stay with the trouble and make kin is an ontological shift um, that is required for white teachers to simultaneously betray whiteness while also using it to work towards social change, to stand in this contradiction, to stay with the trouble, to learn again, or for the first time, how to become less deadly, more responsible, more attuned, more capable of surprise, and overall become educators who care more for their students' well-being than their success stats as a teacher. So I ask you, fellow future educators, are you willing to do the work not for equality, but for equity? Wow, I don't know about you, but that definitely just gave me chills. Yeah, honestly, that was a really good way to wrap things up. And I think it's a great place to end our podcast for today. Amazing. Thanks for joining us today. We hope this gave you insight into your future practice. And as always, thanks for staying in the trouble with us. And we'll see you next week. A lot of opinions, a lot of confusion, a lot of resentment. Some of us scared, some of us defensive. And most of us aren't even paying attention. It seems like we're more concerned with being called racist than we actually are with racism. I've heard that silence is an action, and God knows that I've been passive. What if I actually read an article, actually had a dialogue, actually
actually looked at myself, actually got involved. I'm aware of my privilege and do nothing at all.